Hey mama, yes you. Whether you have babies, have fur babies, plant babies, have lost a baby, want one in the future, or are just on this planet to learn, grow, and nurture yourself, then you are a mama. And all mamas deserve joy, love, play, and self-compassion. This podcast is for those in the Mama Knows Breath program developed from a course in mindful living created by Dr. Elisha Goldstein. Here you can find the talks and meditation to cultivate a mindful approach to the journey of motherhood, including mothering yourself. So take a breath and let's get started. Today, we are going to talk about mindfulness. So what it is and what it isn't, what a mindfulness practice can do for us in terms of our brain and body, as well as our overall sense of well-being. We'll explore our number one worst habit and then learn a strategy to address that habit when we notice it arise. So let's just dive in here. So we're going to start with a little story here. So an old Cherokee is teaching his grandson about life. And he says, a fight is going on inside me. It's a terrible fight. It is between two wolves. One is evil. He is angry, envy, sorrow, regret, greed, arrogance, self-pity, guilt, resentment, inferiority, lies, false pride, superiority, and ego. He continued, the other is good. He is joy, peace, love, hope, serenity, humility, kindness, benevolence, empathy, generosity, truth, compassion, and faith. The same fight is going on inside you and inside every other person too, he said to the boy. The grandson thought about it for a minute and then asked his grandfather, which wolf will win? The old Cherokee simply replied, the one you feed. So I did not make up that story. That was from urbanbalance.com and is a, a very old fable. But we can think of mindfulness as a source of nourishment in our lives. The more we allow ourselves to practice mindfulness and be mindful, the more we enrich our lives with awareness, self-compassion, patience, presence, and joy, and the more we feed that good wolf, so to speak, in our lives. So what is mindfulness? So there are misconceptions out there about what mindfulness actually is, and this can translate to how people understand mindfulness meditation as well. So mindfulness is not something we just practice on the cushion. Rather, mindfulness is a practice that we integrate throughout our daily lives. And it takes time and lots and lots of repetition. So although we aim to practice more consistently than just twice a day, I still think of mindfulness as a practice that's similar to brushing our teeth. It's not something we will one day perfect and then never have to do again. Rather, it's a lifelong practice that we can enjoy because it makes us feel more connected, 
aware, healthier, and happier, even in difficult moments like we talked about last week. So as I continue to talk about mindfulness and the research behind mindfulness, please just know once again that this information is taken from A Course in Mindful Living that was created by Dr. Elisha Goldstein. So mindfulness meditation is also not about clearing our mind or freeing ourselves from unwanted thoughts. So a lot of times we hear that where it's like, oh, I just can't clear my mind, so I must not be able to meditate correctly. We are never going to clear our minds, which is a good thing if you think about it, right? We want our brain and mind to work all the time. Rather, just like we practiced in the meditation last week, and we'll continue to practice in the following weeks, whenever we notice our minds wander, we can just take note of that. We can soften our body and return the focus to the present moment. Mindfulness is really waking up to what's going on. So we all have an intention to be present, relaxed, focused, awake, which helps lead to our attention. So intention leading to attention. From there, we are able to create connection. And then once we're connected, there's a sense of feeling balanced. And once we feel that, we really start to feel well. So there's this beautiful quote by Viktor Frankl, who was an Austrian psychiatrist and a Holocaust survivor. And he said, between stimulus and response, there is a space. In that space is our power to choose our response. In our response lies our growth and our freedom. So Viktor Frankl spent three years in Auschwitz and Dachau and later wrote about his experience in his book, Man's Search for Meaning. And I think this quote is a great summary of what mindfulness is in daily life. The more we practice mindfulness, the more we can lean into that space and have the freedom to choose how to respond. So let's talk a little bit about the neuroscience of mindfulness. So there's so many studies that have been done on the neuroscience of mindfulness, which is wonderful and which is why it's really picked up popularity in the last few years especially. So there was a study done by John Kabat-Zinn and Richie Davidson, and what they did was they did brain scans of people who had never meditated before and then had them do a mindfulness-based stress reduction program or an MBSR program. And what they found, in addition to being a good stress reducer and things like that, mindfulness practice also bolstered immune function. And another really interesting thing they found was there is a left prefrontal shift of activity. So what's interesting there is that the left prefrontal cortex is associated with approaching things in life and positive emotions. So being more open in our approach to life. So the increase in left prefrontal activation will start to create more resiliency in our life too, the more we're able to tap into that side of our brain. Whereas the right prefrontal area are more associated with negative emotions and usually associated with avoiding things because we're focused on those negative emotions that arise. There was also a study out of UCLA by Matthew Lieberman and Naomi Eisenberg, and they had people look at different pictures. So 
one woman was looking really scared and a man was looking really angry and underneath those pics it just said dick and jane so they found that looking at the pictures the participants had an arousal of the amygdala and that's the part of the brain associated with our fight-or-flight response so they were becoming reactive they then showed another group the pictures and asked them, how are they feeling right now? And when the participants could name for the woman sadness or distress, and maybe for the man anger or frustration, there was a greater uptick in the prefrontal region rather than the amygdala. So this is where this idea of name it to tame it came from. When the emotion was named, it naturally tames the brain. So that prefrontal region is more associated with our thoughts and our processing rather than just that heightened emotional response, that heightened fight or flight. So that study is called Putting Feelings into Words, if you ever wanted to look that up. There is also a study out of Toronto done by Farb and colleagues. And what they did was they showed two movies, The Champ in terms of endearment. So one deals with watching a father die. The other deals with watching a child die in these two movies. So both very, very sad movies. And then participants either went through an MBSR program or they were in the control group that didn't go through this program. So what they found was that both felt sadness when watching these films, but the control group scored higher on the Beck depression scale, whereas the MBSR group didn't. So with the Beck depression scale, a higher number indicates higher likelihood or higher level of depression. They also found that the control group had a lot of activity in the center of the brain, which is known as the default mode or the wandering mind. It's like analyzing this feeling. How do I fix it? How do I problem solve it? And depression and anxiety are both conditions that are very me, me, me focused, meaning That when we're in those states, we're trying to figure out how we as individuals can come up with a fix or resolve something that's just on our mind that we can't get rid of. The other group, so the group that did the MBSR, showed more activation in the insula. And the insula is a bridge between that prefrontal cortex, so more of our logic, and the limbic system, which is our emotional system. So what they were able to do was they could come into their body, notice that the feeling was there, they were able to be with it, and hold that feeling as it occurred. So they didn't fall into that depression. So they were really using mindfulness, even though, you know, it wasn't them sitting on that cushion. It was just that it was trained. So they were able to tap into that training and use it so that they didn't become over-responsive or fall into that depressive state. Another study by Lazar showed that there was enhanced neuroplasticity in the insula, which means that there's an increase in the synaptic connections within the insula, and we can think of that as a stronger bridge between the prefrontal and limbic systems. So these changes happen in the brain, and we can't see them. So how does that translate to daily life? Over time, discernment becomes more implicit. So we know from learning theory that as we practice and repeat something over time, the things that were once explicit and required a lot more effort become implicit. 
So we have more of that implicit awareness and acceptance. And as we talked about previously, when practicing mindfulness, our attention and intention are aligned, allowing for connection, helping us to feel balanced and well. Also with mindfulness, we grow to learn that our practice is not about eliminating the parts that we don't like or dismissing tough feelings. Like the studies show, and as our meditation practice asks us to do, we learn to relax while being awake with awareness, and we can hold the things that arise. Now I have the space to discern how I want to hold this as I practice my mindfulness throughout my day. And we'll talk about this more in the Self-Compassion Week. But mindfulness teaches us to incline toward ourselves during difficult times, and provide ourselves with what we're needing in the moment. And this allows for us to develop a confidence that no matter what happens, we're going to be okay. And we are building the confidence that we can take care of ourselves in a healthier way as mindfulness can help us out of a bad habit loop. So what that Toronto study showed us was that mindfulness can help reduce the craving toward bad habits because our mind is not stuck in that default mode of I want, I want, I want. Rather, our brain is more adept at allowing us to notice that thought, allow it to be there, and allow it to pass. An urge might come up in the form of a thought or a feeling, and we can soften around that, identify the need rather than the want, And then we can respond in a way that's most effective and healthiest for us. So we're feeling more balanced. We're holding all parts of ourselves. We are developing confidence. We're breaking bad habit loops. We've got that buffer for depression, decreased stress, improved immune function, and more of that implicit discernment and greater sense of connection. So Carl Rogers has the quote, it wasn't until I accepted myself just as I was in the moment that I was free to change. So accepting ourselves just as we are in the moment, and then we have that freedom to change and to grow. As we talked about, mindfulness can help us break bad habits. So what is our number one worst habit? And we probably have an idea of what we believe our own personal worst habit is, but it's probably not actually your worst. Our number one worst habit is actually thinking. And it's really not our fault. Our brain is wired for a negativity bias because way back when, we needed that for survival. We needed to assume danger was lurking and we needed to be on high alert. We still have that negativity bias wired into us, but where our focus goes, our energy flows. So if we give into that bias, that's what we're going to get more of. So instead, we want to shift where our focus goes, and mindfulness can help us do that. So we're going to use this concept in our Deepen homework activity this week, and we're going to make a list of activities we do daily and identify them as either nourishing or depleting. We then can see if we can increase our focus and implementation of those nourishing activities throughout the week. And this is a quote from Winnie the Pooh that I just love. So it's Piglet and Pooh looking at a tree and it says, supposing a tree fell down, Pooh, when we were underneath it. Supposing it didn't, said Pooh. 
After careful thought, Piglet was comforted by this. So it's just that idea that we don't have to really believe our thoughts and we also don't have to spend time ruminating on those worst possible situations because that's our worst habit and we can use mindfulness to break that habit. So that brings us to the idea that thoughts are not facts. Many of our brains believe that if we think it, it must be true. If I think my boss hates me, there must be a truth there. If I think I'm not a good mom, it's clearly because I know deep down I'm somehow neglecting my kids. The thing is, thoughts have what we call truthiness, meaning they appear true even if they're not. It's like they're wearing a very believable mask. So how do we know the difference? A fact is something that pretty much 100% of people would agree upon. If I hold up a pen, the majority of people would agree it's a pen. That's a fact. But we can have thoughts that appear so true and keep returning. And the more they return, the more we tend to believe them. And these we will refer to as nuts or negative unconscious thoughts. We don't control our thoughts. They just naturally occur. But nuts pop up and make you feel just that, a little nutty. So for me, after my miscarriage, my nut was, I'll never be able to get pregnant again. Or when I was single, it was, I'll never be able to find someone that I truly love and want to be with. The thing with nuts is we want to crack them because they can really impact our happiness and our lives. The key is that proving a nut wrong is not about just waiting until the opposite becomes true. Like when I found out I was pregnant or when I met my husband. No, no, no. We need to crack those nuts before so we can allow ourselves to focus on our capability of making those things happen. So how do we do that? So we are going to use Byron Katie's four questions to help us crack our nuts. So Byron Katie is an author and a speaker who teaches a method of self-inquiry called the work. And these questions are part of doing the work. Her questions have been adapted by Dr. Elisha Goldstein for our program. So... The questions are, number one, is it true? Number two, is it absolutely true? Number three, how does the thought make me feel? And number four, what would it be like if I didn't have this thought? So let's use an example. Back when I was having a hard time getting pregnant, I said to myself, I'll never be able to get pregnant. So I can ask myself, is it true? And my brain is going to say, yep, feels true. So then I move on to question two. Is it absolutely true? Would 100% of people agree? And the answer is no. My doctor wouldn't agree. And the honest reality is that I did get pregnant before, so I can get pregnant. I know that. Then I can move on to number three. How does this thought make me feel? Sad, depressed, defeated, And then number four, what would it be like if I didn't have this thought? I would feel excited. I would feel more empowered. I would be wanting to try again. So we can see how these four simple questions, when we work through them, can help us just give some space between that thought and then how we respond I can now move on with my day knowing that that thought is just a thought. It's not a fact. And I can even imagine the opposite being true. So as we learn today, 
We know now what mindfulness is and what it isn't. What a mindfulness practice can do for us in terms of our brain and body, as well as our overall sense of well-being. We explored our number one worst habit, and then we learned that strategy of the four questions to help break that habit when we notice it arise. Thanks so much for joining me for week two. I'm so excited to chat with you next week for week three.